Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. My name is Bramble, the Eric King. And my name is Silent Seth Shattered Memories. You know, we're a full weekend October, Eric. I think you might be slipping, dude. I really expected the HQ to be completely decked out with Halloween decorations by now. Oh, I'm insulted. You think so? I just decided this year, instead of simply, you know, flipping a switch at midnight on the 1st, this October, we would appreciate the buildup. Take our first indie showcase this month. It's not outright spooky, you know, a little unsettling, but but no less deserving. This week, we have Cocoon from Geometric Interactive. Right, but then at least we've got a super fun, spooky top five to kick off October with. For this year's Spooky Season's first episode, we are counting down our picks for the top five ghosts in the history of Nintendo. <sighs> Gives me the chills just thinking about it. Especially knowing after that, we're going full paranormal. We absolutely are. We even created a brand new segment just so we could do it. Because Paranormasite released this past March. We've even opened up a portal to the present to give the game its ghostly spotlight that it deserves. We're finishing today's episode with our first ever boomerang review. Throwing the boomerang flower and pulling it back. And then <laughs> are you finally going to put up the decorations, Eric? I might not have to. Check out the ornaments on the wall behind you. Well, what? what? <laughs> ah! How did those get there? <laughs> Maybe it was one of the ghosts we're talking about later. Uh, <laughs> all right, this is starting to get weird. Let's just start the episode. <laughs> it's time to go all in. <laughs> That's right, everybody. Spooky season is here. October is here. And we're here with, uh, <laughs> with a brand new episode of All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show, reaching every week, no shells left unturned, and no point is left unearned. Uh, feels good to be here in spooky season. Maybe it's starting to get a little less unbearably hot outside. Um, you know, it was, ain't that the truth? <laughs> it was, it was like in the seventies and overcast today. And I took my dog out for a walk and I ate a honey crisp apple and I just had the thought, I was like, we're, we're back. We're back. We are so back. <laughs> we're back, baby. We're thriving. <laughs> it's fall. Finally feels like fall. So, um, very, very good indeed. We have our coffees and our, you know, all that junk. So, uh, I'm happy to be after a, you know, horrible summer. Uh, it's nice to be in the fall, man. It's nice to be in spooky season. Um, oh, yes. So, yeah, man. We're in it. Uh, for those who uh, who have never, like, kind of joined us, if y'all are new to the show, uh, we always go big for spooky season. Um, we always do it upright. Uh, you know, intro tune that y'all heard. Yeah, I was about to say. Tune. If, that was your, if that was your first time listening <laughs> to that fire Halloween theme that we have, oh, yeah. isn't that so good? Oh, my Very, Lord. very, very good. Yeah. Jordan the Red Panda absolutely killed it. Uh, really, really gets me in the mood. Just hearing that theme just really properly puts me in the spooky season mood. Yeah, ma'am. So we're we're doing that. We uh, we do spooky segments, you know, all throughout the month of October. So uh, buckle up, folks. This is just the first episode of many. But before we get into the episode, sir, you know what we have to do first? 
the spooky specters that haunt our Patreon must be summoned. That's right. We need to thank the wonderful friends and supporters at patreon.com slash all in podcast. Beginning, of course, with our golden banana bunch. We need to thank Rob Yapel, third strongest mole, Sean, Sean O'Baggins Ashton, Tim A, aka Neo Prime 33, aka Nintendo Dad number four, Matt's Shy Guy City Murray, Phelan Ward, Bill Tucker, Marcus O'Neill. Liam D, Bowza, Gamer Jason, Andrew Wilkins, Foolish Fuji, and Alan. Hashtag look to the cookie. Thanks so much to our Golden Banana Bunch. You can, of course, get a seven-day free trial to the Golden Banana tier. Uh, join their ranks and see what all the fuss is about. But moving to our Triforce tier. You think Josh Vaughn, the godfather of Tingle Love Tuesday, John Dat Fast Cummins of the Retrologic Podcast, as well as the On Topic Retro Podcast, the Globe Trotting Jet Set Nintendo Hub and Sparky of the Nintendo Hub on YouTube, Adam Caparello of the Retro Groove Podcast, Shy Guy, the other half of our Shy Guy Mod Squad. Thank you, Shy Guy, Daniel Hinojosa, Dan and Luma, Solo Something, and the Legend himself. The Vincent Price to our Raven. Uncle Randy. Uncle Randy. Nevermore, Uncle Randy. Uh, appreciate you guys uh, who support us over there. Uh, big, big thanks to y'all who throw a few bones our way for our hard work. And if you don't have any bones to throw our way, that's okay too. Uh, not only can you, you know, support us on Patreon, pick up some merch at bit.ly slash all in merch. You can, you know, support us entirely for free uh, by dropping some words, leaving a five-star review on your podcast service of choice, just like an anonymous five-star reviewer on Spotify did uh, this week, keeping the streak going. We're, we've been getting new Spotify reviews every week. So keep that streak up, yes. y'all. Very, very appreciated. It's free, easy to do. Thank you guys so much. Um, and a great way to support the show. Whatever, you know, if your service that you listen to us on supports reviews, go ahead and do that. Uh, it's very, very appreciated. Um, I think that's it though, sir, for the housekeeping. What has been going on in your world? Uh, well, you know, it's still kind of new. I still haven't finished the honeymoon phase with my, my new pretty little PlayStation 5. You know, I've been continuing to play. I actually played so much Mortal Kombat 1 this past week that uh, the game literally said is like, yeah, it's done. There's no more content for you to unlock until next season. Uh, so, <laughs> but I've talked, you know, this is a Nintendo podcast. I've I've talked enough about the PlayStation 5 of, uh, over the past couple weeks. Uh, definitely make sure to check out that episode of SideQuest we did last week. But in the world of Nintendo, obviously, one of the most anticipated indie games of 2023 uh, for both of us came out last week. So I have been playing Cocoon, but we are featuring that later on in the indie showcase. So stay tuned to hear our full thoughts on the deep dive into geometric interactives brand new 3d puzzle adventure game uh spoiler alert uh, spoiler alert it's good enough to be in the indie showcase but in addition to that been been kind of gearing up for spooky season a little bit finishing a couple things you know i actually uh went back and played some more patrick's parabox still haven't 100 percented that game and i do absolutely need to uh, you know, playing another good puzzle game kind of put me in the mood to go back into Patrick's Paradox. Maybe a couple other reasons that game made me think about Patrick's Paradox as well. Stay tuned. But uh, I did that. Uh, also, I, I want to shout out to to our amazing community. I would love to get some really good 
October spooky horror scary recommendations from you guys. If you guys have movies or streaming series or television, whatever that you think I may not have heard of, I really want to check out some cool new stuff this spooky season. If you've got any recommendations, hit us up in lay discord i would love to get some really cool stuff i went back and watched all the classic universal monsters movies last year and i want to try to do some big cool spooky stuff this month and i need your help uh but back in the world of nintendo the last thing that i will shout out really is something that i was excited to do and i wound up losing sleep with you and our friend matt (laughs) in order to do it this past week but still we had somehow still had a blast doing it you me and matt all got together earlier this week and actually played kirby and the amazing mirror online yeah that was funny because uh i happened to like be awake late i was editing the nintendo drive after we had recorded it and matt hit me up he's like hey you know, I'm up early, so if you if you wanted to play some Kirby, I'd be down. I was like, yeah, like, let me finish up this edit, and then I'll be down. And then we jumped on. A few minutes later, you were on, and you, you like, messaged me, like, hey, are you guys playing Kirby? I'm like, yeah. However, isn't it, like, 3 a.m. your time <laughs> or something? And he's time like, Time is yeah. just a construct, Seth. <laughs> yeah, but I took a nap earlier. It'll be fine. It's like, okay. <laughs> and we um and we we jumped on to uh to co-op Kirby and the Amazing Mirror. That game sucks, man. <laughs> that game's not good. <laughs> that game is not good. <laughs> yeah, so. when it comes to uh, a a navigability, if that's even a okay. word, yeah, I'm the, the game is yep. The, the game's a little hard to wrap your mind around. Genuinely, for about an hour, the three of us just kept going in and out of areas, just trying to find something new, trying to find a screen we hadn't seen before. And it was fun because we were all there. We were hanging out. We were talking. We were enjoying ourselves. But, man, I couldn't have imagined playing that just by myself and just oh, no. desperately yeah. trying to find my way around that game. I'm sure, you know, how long to beat has it at a couple hours. I probably, that that game probably would take me 20, 30 hours to beat. I'd, I'd absolutely need a guide, I feel like, for that game because it's, it's so easy to just keep going in circles. But again, still, it looks pretty, you know, running around and just messing around with the different power-ups in the game, including the laser power-up, the Cupid power-up, and, you know, just having you guys around i still wound up having fun but i don't know if i'd be as eager to go back to that game without (sighs) the multiplayer aspect no i'm good i mean like yeah it was one of those things where like i had fun like talking to my friends and having like a you know digital uh hub to talk to my friend but like what's like just i at a certain point like midway through our session i was like yo this game sucks <laughs> it's like this is not a good game um and it's funny cuz like i remember playing the game as a kid and you know i wasn't really looking at games like super analytically but i didn't even really remember it having like that kind of structure um at least not like the the map layout being as obtuse and unreadable and bad as it is um but i mean yeah like it's really pretty like the visual style and like the music is the best part of that game oh yeah um and like being able to play it in co-op in 2023 is is like it's neat but like you play it once and you're kind of good and like after you went to bed matt and i wound up playing salmon run on splatoon for like 
a few more hours <laughs> like nice. just kind of just kind of talking like it's it is nice to have these kind of like little you know digital places to hang out even if it is Kirby and the Amazing Mirror which as it turns out I I was kind of hoping that I would go in and be like ah everybody's wrong Kirby and the Amazing Mirror is good actually and uh, no everybody was right it's bad it's the worst Kirby <laughs> game with a bullet <laughs> <laughs> So. But thankfully, I had you guys to make it bearable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Could not do that in single player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, you know, with PS5 and making sure we played Cocoon for this week's Indie Showcase, there were a couple of things that I wanted to get to this week that I didn't have time for. I wasn't unfortunately able to get to uh, the the... Uh, the Sonic Frontiers final mm. content update. I really want to try to get to that this weekend. I haven't been able to really put any time into to Paleo Pines. I'd like to try to do that. But there are a couple things that I really, really want to try to get to this next week. There was a game that I specifically waited on, kind of spooky season to play, a game that I was really excited for that came out earlier this year called Bramble the Mountain King. Mm. I waited specifically until spooky season this year to play it because it's got some really like old, like old world folklore, evil fae kind of vibes to it that I'm really digging. So I hope I get the opportunity to check that out. And a, uh, a game that couple weeks ago we didn't even know we were getting here in the middle of the month that i hope that uh or that i will not hope that i will absolutely be making time for in the upcoming week a certain ward a maybe even demented ward that needs to be played through but what about you my friend yeah so i mean like I mean, we we can say like we we are playing Dimension the Ward. We uh, thanks to our friends at Atui uh, who sent along a code for it. We're embargoed on it until next week, so I can't give you any impressions on it. But um, I did play through that whole thing this week. Um, there will be next week. The embargo is up on the 11th, so uh, which is the day before the game comes out. You'll find a video on the YouTube channel, um, and you'll we'll also you know talk about it much more next week as well. So stay tuned for that. That. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff that I've played um, and a bunch of other stuff that I've done on the YouTube channel. Uh, so we got a code for a tiny sticker tail. So big thanks to Ogre Pixel who sent that along. I played through that whole thing too, actually. Um, and it's really cute. It's a it's a really cute. It's it's funny. It's an interesting follow up to their last game, Lonesome Village. In fact. Lonesome Village came out less than a year ago, and so when this game came out so soon after, I was like, how? Like, how did they put this together so quickly, you know? Um, and come to find out, it's because the game is really small. It actually, like, that's, it's called a tiny sticker tail, you know, um, because it's a little bite-sized game. You can play through the whole thing in less than three hours. Um, in fact, I think I 100%ed the game in less than three hours. Um, so it's just a little bite-sized adventure. I think it's like 10 bucks, like $9.99 or something like that, maybe even less. Um, and it is a like sort of, you know, screen by screen, Link's Awakening kind of vibes. Um, but the big gimmick is that many of the things in the world can be sort of like lifted and peeled up and put into a sticker book and placed 
anywhere else in the world. That's kind of the game's big gimmick. It's got like a great cute art style. It's got like a heartfelt kind of story behind it, weirdly. Um, because like the whole thing is like you're helping the people of this island out with their problems but you're being kind of pulled along by uh, your dad who like it's sort of, you know, implied throughout the course of the game that he passed away and you're kind of like picking up the pieces of, you know, what your dad is kind of left behind and many of the characters like knew your dad and stuff like this. So it's just a cute little game, man. Like it's just, it's harmless, like no real, like it's not going to like change your life or be game of the year or anything like that. But as a, as like a cute, wholesome you know, few hours on like a weekend or something. It's a really easy recommend. The art style's nice. gorgeous. It's got good music. You know, um, again, like the you know the the whole gimmick is is good. Uh, there's a video on the YouTube channel now for it, and there was a moment. Um, you know, what, what's nice is they actually do like many times anyway. The stickers will do what they should do. So, for example. There's a moment in the game where, like, you you literally are able to get, like, the sun and the moon as a sticker. <laughs> you know? You can literally put the sun and the moon in your little sticker book. That's um, dope. Yeah. And, like, when you put the sun and the moon together, it exactly what you think happens, happens. There's an eclipse, you know? And there's actually, like, a whole little, like, side story that revolves around the utilization of that. It's neat. Um, you know, when there's like a campfire sticker somewhere in the world, you can peel, you know, peel it up and then use that to melt some ice somewhere else, like in the cold mountains, you know, it's, it, it's a neat gimmick. Like it's, it's a neat little thing. There's a couple little like kind of off the beaten path secrets and stuff. Um, yeah, it's really good. I don't know. I was, I was really pleased with it. Like, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to play and replay over and over, but Again, for like 10 bucks, you know, two, three hours, it's, you could do a lot worse. So, uh, Tiny Sticker Tail, really liked nice. it. Um, again, video on the YouTube channel for that. Uh, another video, we got a code for this game, Bilkin's Folly. So, uh, big thanks to the publisher for that. Uh, and this is a sort of like, Kind of Monkey Island style, um, in terms of the tone anyway, it's like pirates, it's treasure hunting. Um, in fact, the main character, his name's Percival something Bilkins. Um, he's looking for his parents and he sort of looks like if Guybrush Threepwood and the main character of Spelunky one had a baby, <laughs> like they, they, like they did the fusion dance and made this dude, um, He's like this goofy kind of guy, and he's got this really cute dog with him, um, which is always good. And yes, you can pet the dog. It's very good. Um, and yeah, it's just this like pixel art sort of puzzle solving, piratey, treasure hunting sort of thing. There's a cool little, uh, you know, a lot of the puzzle solving comes from like um, finding notes and things that are like, walk, you know, X amount of paces this way and then that way. And like, you know, dig here and you know, it's, it's stuff like that. And you feel like a, like a genius whenever you, you figure out how to do all of that stuff. They've even baked in, like if you hold the trigger while the character is walking, it will count your paces for you. So, um, like, stuff what? like that. Like, it'll count your paces, like, when you're walking. So, like, one, two, three, four. Because, you know, it's like pirate treasure. Like, they're saying walk nine paces yeah, east, yeah. you know. So, they have, like, a pace counter baked in mechanically. 
So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's neat. Fair enough. Yeah, it's uh, it's a neat little game. I will say, uh, I got to the first like kind of city uh, in the game in the YouTube video, and it did start to chug when I got there. Um, the frame rate like really tanked when I got there, which is weird because it doesn't seem like the kind of game that like should like it's very very simple pixel art art style. So I was I was surprised to see it to see it ever really struggle. So I don't know if it just needs some extra optimization or something, but uh, writing's good. It's fun. It's funny. So, and it's also Bilkin's Folly has got one of the best uh, like switch home icon screens that I've ever seen. Like, I just love the key art and like the colors. It's got these like deep, like purples and I don't know something about it. It just looks, you know, looks really pretty. So, um, but yeah, Bilkin's Folly. It's good video on the YouTube channel. So check that out. Um, and the last Indeed. thing I'll shout out, I'll just quickly shout this out because I actually am not going to be able to make a video uh, on it for weird technical reasons. But I did play the kind of early Steam Next Fest demo for Another Crab's Treasure. Um, and it's weird because like there's a, and this has happened to me before, uh, certain demos, because these things are games that are in development, right? So it's not like a final build. Um and sometimes they don't interact well with OBS to capture the footage. Uh, and another crab's treasure is one of them. So the game was running at like an uncapped frame rate. So it was running perfectly, you know, fine and great on my computer, but OBS was not able to capture it properly. Um, so unfortunately I can't make a video of it. Um, but I did play it. And it's, it's exact, it's really good. It's going to be a very special game when it comes out next year. I'm looking forward to playing it on switch because on PC it's on PC, it's very like quick and snappy and stuff. And I am going to be curious to see what the frame rate and stuff is like, um, on switch. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's like, it's crab souls. I mean, it's exactly what it says it is. Um, and it's, it's cool because it streamlined a lot of the design, of Dark Souls, like, so when you find things in the world, be it, you know, a soda can or a shot glass or something that you can use as your shell, uh, it's very readable, like, how much defense that gives you, if it slows you down or not, and then many of them actually have, like, special, like, effects, um, so, for example, the shot glass has a lot of defense, like, it, when you're wearing it, your defense is quite high, but it can only take a couple of hits, because it's a shot glass, um, meanwhile, the soda can, uh, can be sort of discarded as like a bomb. Um, you can just kind of like ditch it and like kind of pop it at an enemy as like a massive damage bomb. So it's neat. And like, it, it's kind of like it's dark souls as a hermit crab and the shells are like at the heart of it. And you've also got like this little like hook shot. Um, and there's like a lot of like overworld sort of like navigation. You're climbing on little nets, like crab nets, and you're, you know, you're swimming through the water and sort of fluttering. And um, yeah, yeah, no, it's great. I'm this is no, gonna I, be great when it comes out. I can't out. wait to play it. I really can't yeah. wait to play it. It looks so fun. Yeah, it's gonna be oh. great when it comes out. It's hard too. It's like the the Dark Souls influence is definitely there um it's not you know i died you know quite a few times on the the boss they let you fight uh in the demo it's a cool fight like they uh i'm looking forward to seeing how far they go with it so nice. really really cool uh steam next fest doesn't properly kick off until next monday um 
but a few people have like kind of put uh, put their demos up early. Our friends at Summit Sphere put up a, an update to their Anton Blast uh, Dynamite demo, and I played that. But there's not really too much new to report on that because all they really did is it's the same demo as before, except in the uh, in the happy hour section where you have to like run back to the beginning of the level. Um, they incorporated like a little kind of sneak peek at the game's bosses. Um, so the game's bosses, they're called like the, like the break busters or something like that. Like they have a name, um, and it, they're, they're all on this giant like Zeppelin and it sort of becomes like an escape sequence rather than just simply running to the start of the level. But other than that, it's the exact same, you know, level that we've already played. So, um, but yeah, that continues to be, you know, Anton Blast is going to be great when it comes out too. Oh yeah. Can't so, wait. Yeah. Can't wait. Uh, but that's pretty much it. Uh, and of course, you know, I also played through Cocoon and, uh, you know, we're about to talk much, much more about that, aren't we? Oh, yes. We're about to talk much, much more about that. It came out just this past week. Um, and I mean, let us know if you guys have played it or if you guys have checked out anything from this past week. Uh, reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter. Join our amazing Discord but yes, of course, you and I were both very, very much looking forward to Cocoon. We finally got our hands on it September 29th. And uh, I mean, there's a lot to say about it. So let's just go ahead and get into it, shall we? The very first segment of Spooky Season this year is the, I would say, the the world-bending, mind-bending craziness of Cocoon from Geometric Interactive. So Cocoon is finally out, a game that both Seth and I have been looking very much forward to for a very long time. Ever since we first saw the trailer, Seth and I started getting vibes of like Death's Door and Tunic and, and games like that. And of course, then it came out that it was from the mind of Jeppe Carlson. I think so. I'm not 100%. I, I think that's what it is. Je- Jeppe, yeah, yeah. I, I apologize. I think it's a Danish name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, if we completely messed that up, I do apologize, sir, because you certainly are worthy of recognition. The man behind Limbo, the man behind Inside, to classic, frankly, indie kind of. I, I'm. You could call them horror, absolutely, especially Limbo. This one, not quite as horror, but definitely leaning into the surreal, and we got all kinds of interesting looks at that from the world shifting mechanic and, and everything. But by and large, this is a game that Seth and I both knew we were going to be day one on. It came out last week. We've both been able to play it over the course of the past seven days. And we are here to tell you all about cocoon. Turns out we're featuring in this week's indie showcase. So it turned out to be okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And, and, you know, you, you bring up, um, uh, Carlson, Jeppe Carlson. He he actually, uh, you know, not only was he, you know, part of the Limbo and Inside team, he was actually the lead gameplay designer specifically. So the one who made the puzzles in those games, the one who designed all of the puzzles. And that I think is, yeah, Cocoon does have, like, it does carry a similar tone to Limbo and Inside, but like, it makes a lot of sense when you consider 
you know, like the fact that he is a puzzle designer, um, sort of directing this game because Cocoon, I mean, is a puzzle game. Yeah. It's a little different from Limbo and from uh, Inside, which were both kind of these uh, kind of unbroken uh, left to right 2D puzzle platformers. Cocoon jumps Jeppe into the third dimension. There's certainly a lot of jumping in the game between worlds, but uh, this is a 3D puzzle action adventure. And well, not really action adventure, mostly uh, just puzzles, but... uh, a much more vibrant world this time around, certainly no less surreal, but I was uh, like the visual style of the game. And this was something I told you it, a lot of the surrealist vibes that I was getting kind of reminded me of planet alpha, which is also kind of like limbo and inside a similar kind of 2d forever puzzle platformer like that. But, but there was something about this one, the it's, it just, Alien just really is the best way to put it. Everything in this game just feels so alien. There's nothing in this game that feels like you could see it in the natural world. Every single form and every single mass, with the exception of a few rocks on the ground, they just all seem so other. And that was a vibe. I don't know, just something about like Planet Alpha and games like this, those kind of just super surrealist vibes. I really dig yeah, it's um, you know, it's very like the the world or the worlds of Cocoon um, <laughs> are very like they're very organic, they're very intricate, they're very sort of like yeah, a lot of like kind of bug imagery. Obviously, Cocoon, you know, your main character is kind of this dung beetle sort of looking person, um, and that's that's very clearly like the point of order that they took for a lot of the design inspiration was like was bugs, um, you know, the yeah. whole concept of carrying this giant orb on your back, you know, sort of thing. So yeah, a lot of the visual elements in the game, especially the organic elements in the game, the best way I could really describe it. Imagine if like your internal organs designed themselves after insects. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's that's pretty much it. It's it's a difficult one to describe because there's nothing really that looks quite like it. And I think it's one of the one of the strongest elements of the game for sure. The game is yeah. um very very well made. Like that's just yeah. that, that was my my thought like playing this thing my my two thoughts were first and foremost this game is so cool. And then secondly, <laughs> this game is so well made. Like they there is just a level of of polish behind just about everything. It, it you know you mentioned like tonally the the correlation to limbo and inside it's impossible not to uh compare it to games like that because it's also and in like planet alpha like you mentioned this is another like wordless you know sort yeah. of adventure it doesn't ever like give you a story front facing so and i mean even you you talk about wordless well, we've played games where there's no real communication no real you know, on the face, no real direct narrative going on. But I mean, this game takes it to the next level. Like there's not even any prompts. There is zero. Once you get past the main menu, once you hit start game, like that's the last word you see. And that's the last word that's even presented to you really until the end credits roll. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit that there was that puzzle game that you played recently uh, that you really liked where, the, the game itself and the design of the game was all about show, don't tell. It was all about 
kind of letting you find things out for yourself and letting you discover the world and the mechanics of the game and then just kind of going from there. This game also does that, but one of the benefits of this game is the fact that mechanically, it's incredibly simple. In one respect, at least. I didn't know this was going to be the case, but Cocoon is actually just a single button game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything's done with just one button, which is really impressive. Like the the amount that they get out of that for for a one button game, it's it's very now. Yes, you are still going to have to like navigate, you know, the world and stuff, and like you know, but but yeah, it it really because there is not any um, technical depth. Like it's not asking the player to do anything like taxing or demanding like physically if that makes sense it allows a lot of space for the player to just sort of like mentally parse out everything that's happening which is going to be which is going to be paramount to this game because it asks you to kind of wrap your mind around some very heady concepts worlds within worlds and you know worldception and stuff there's a little bit of brain breaking in here yeah i mean the Comparing things to Inception feels like it's become short form. It's become uh, mm-hmm. like just the Cliff's Notes way yeah, like of trite. describing something yeah. as complex. But I mean, if you take the movie Inception's premise, this is literally very much like that. You do have worlds within worlds and even getting towards some of the stuff at the end of the game the solutions to what you're going to have to solve become literally paradoxical. Yeah. Uh, So, okay, let me try to best explain this game because even playing through it, and that's you, you talk about how well designed it is, how well made it is. It astounds me how effortlessly they were able to guide me through this world and these concepts that, when you are told these things just feel like they'd be so incredibly hard to wrap your brain around. I just, I felt like I was gliding through so much of this game. I just felt like I immediately understood what the game wanted me to do so often, but trying to put it into words feels like such a Herculean task, but essentially what you are doing is there are worlds. There are multiple worlds that you will come across that you will explore within cocoon all that all exist within these little orbs. Think like the marbles from men in black, essentially. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you can go inside the orbs, inside the worlds within the orbs. And there are worlds within there that you have to explore. But then sometimes you'll have to leave that world, leave that orb and then carry that orb around with you. But a lot of the extra worlds, a lot of the orbs, you'll eventually be able to unlock additional abilities for. So in addition to being these little glass worlds that you carry around with you, they are also tools that you use to solve the puzzles in the world that you're currently in. And you will wind up having to not only switch between worlds, you will wind up having to like store worlds within other worlds Uh, So when, you know, when Seth compares it to Inception, again, it's a very literal comparison, but it's just, it's such a really interesting 
uh, and as you kept telling me, cool mechanic and cool idea for a puzzle game like this. That was just instantly, like I was just a thousand percent on board. Like, yes, give me all of this game. Yeah, and like the the nice thing about it, because you you make a great point. The game, even though this sounds incredibly complicated, and and it is, the game does make it palatable, and the game does make you feel like you're able to sort of like, you know, understand what it's putting down, even though what it's putting down is something incredibly complicated. That's totally the magic of this game. And there were a couple of like puzzles that had me sort of scratching my head, but you know, a a lot of it is like, you know, a lot of it is understanding what needs to happen, but not knowing how to make it happen. And like, that is sort of the puzzles, like what sort of sequence of events do I need to make happen? What sort of like weird world jumping sequence of events do I need to make happen in order to get the desired effect that I know needs to occur? Um, and like, yeah, like it's, it's very impressive the way, like the, the game is polished to like a mirror sheen in that way from a design perspective. It really is like from a design, this game is ridiculously well put together from just every nook and cranny from every little piece of available map and the way that the game cuts off parts of the map that you no longer need just to remove that amount of complexity from your potential, you know, from what you need to worry about at that point, the way the game ushers you in directions ever so gently throughout the entire game and the little visual cues that the game gives you to like, I almost felt manipulated into beating the game because Again, there's just something about the way that the puzzles were designed that was so, like, it's incredibly clever, but also, like, almost subtly, I'm not even, like, hand-holding, but, like, gently pushing you along in all the ways that a player would ever need in a game like this. This is a game that, kind of like Patrick's Parabox, I was a little concerned about my personal intelligence quotient I was coming too. in. Yeah. Um, and I honestly, I do think, especially talking about some of those late game solves, I do honestly think that playing Patrick's Parabox did help me a little bit sure. uh, in the lead up to Cocoon. But yeah, just playing through the game and knowing what everything can do because it's just a single button game. There's not necessarily a lot of depth in terms of your individual capabilities at any one point. So there's not too many things you can do, but at the same time, it feels like there's so much that it, that could be done. It's, it's insane the way the game presents itself as being so wide open in terms of potential solutions, but actually just kind of handing them to you very often. Mm -hmm. Did you, so the game actually does have some collectibles. Did you find any of them on your own? I found like five of them. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was funny because I didn't realize like, I didn't realize that the things I was finding, I thought that they were like teasing the forthcoming boss fights or, or whatever. I didn't realize what they actually were. So I did find yeah. a few of them, but like there's like 11 or 12 collectibles Are there? in the game. Yeah, I did. I didn't know the first time I found one. I immediately was like, Oh, this is, 
this is an optional thing. This isn't part of the main story. Yeah. Um, well, and some of them, like what you have to do, because I, I wanted to go through and like collect them all and see if there was like a, a hidden ending or something like that. It doesn't appear yeah. that that's the case. Um, but the, um, the, the, like some of the ones that you, like you really have to think it's like crazy. Like some of the things you have to do to get to some of the very, very, very off the beaten path. And that, that's a, that even impressed me even more about the game that like, it feels when you're playing it, like you found the one way to navigate through the world. And there's not like there's, there's multiple ways to sort of get through it. And that's wild to me. Yeah, it's there's a couple of them that are that are fairly obvious to the point where I genuinely thought I was going down the game's intended path for a second. Uh, but yeah, a, a lot of them are a lot of them are very hard. Well, of course, a lot of them are very hard to find. Apparently, I didn't even find half of them. But um, but uh, yeah, that's in terms of we're we're being very vague about it, obviously. But in terms of video gamey style collectibles, there are. Uh, you know, like Seth said, about a dozen things that you can kind of find off the beaten path. And I think once you find one or two of them, you'll kind of understand. But that's really the only video gamey collectible uh, type thing in the game. Like there's not even any HUD. There's nothing to really track. There's no life. There's no currency. Uh, so the game keeps it very minimalist in terms of stuff like that. I guess they felt that the... the the, the traveling within worlds and placing worlds within other worlds. I guess they figured that that was complicated enough. They didn't want to further complicate things, which I do kind of respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like th- this game just kind of is simply what it is. And I think that some players might take issue with, with that considering, you know, the game is twenty four ninety nine, and the game is about three and a half to four hours long and about four hours. Yeah. Yeah, like, and and if you just play through the game, you're going to have a, you know, a great experience and everything, but, like, there's not really too much incentive to replay, so I do think that people are going to find themselves up against that, all things considered. I, you know, I think the experience is cool enough to, like, justify the, the price tag, and but, but, you know, I do think that people should be aware of that, at least. Yeah. I know... Uh, well, I mean, when it comes to the narrative, there's, there, there is not a lot here. You know, we've likened it to games like Limbo uh, and Planet Alpha, and you know, uh, Limbo certainly has some stuff going on underneath the hood. Planet Alpha, you know, I talked about how I felt about the ending inside. Uh, also, a couple times. these these yeah, games, you know, they have they have something like, for example, right. When you and I finished Planet Alpha, we were like texting yeah. each other all these theories and was this mean, was that exactly, mean? Yeah. The, exactly, yeah. Cocoon does not have that. Cocoon is yeah. not like the the story, even though it's wordless, those other games are wordless too. Cocoon doesn't really have anything to say. There's frankly. something that happens at the end that they, I mean, maybe, kind of, but even I don't know and the fact that I don't know I think does speak to maybe the ending was a little bit too ambiguous. Maybe the ending could have been a little bit more front facing, but ultimately that's, I mean, I knew it probably wasn't going to be very narrative heavy, but my, like my biggest takeaway was just the experience 
of playing it. There's not often, it doesn't happen very often when I'm playing puzzle games that just the simple act of finding the solutions is, is not just even gratifying. It's, it's, it makes me excited to see the next one. I was audibly saying when I would get to a new area, like, Oh, what does this do? Oh, I, if I can, I started talking to my television and uh, just the, the way the game had me feeling <laughs> like making me feel maybe smarter than I really am. But I felt like I was Sherlock Holmes up here, you know, you know, clicking my pipe against my teeth. Like, Oh, what do I do with this here? Oh, it seems elementary, but but what do I do? Yeah. And I haven't gotten that feeling too many times on the Nintendo Switch. So if the game has a somewhat paper thin, possibly, potentially, if you deeply want to look into something, potential, you know, thing at the end, if that's the only thing that I can really say about it, I'm okay. Personally, for me, I... It's hard to quantify best, but I do think it is one of the most satisfying puzzle games that I've played on the Nintendo Switch, ultimately. I would agree It only with that. took me about four hours, but it was, again, like you said, incredibly well-designed. Like, it's so well-designed that I mentally made a point of commenting to myself and commending the, the game design several times. Like, Oh, that's such a cool solution. Oh, this area is so cool. Um, and just playing through it and just being able to experience this game and being able to experience this world. It was, it was satisfying and cool. Just like for you, Seth, they're just kind of the words that I keep coming back to and the way that they were able to somehow when you've got nearly half a dozen explorable areas that you're almost literally juggling throughout the entire course of the game and even having to store them within themselves, being able to keep track of everything and the design that the, the design chops that you need to bring to the table to have, again, all of these areas at your fingertips and still be able to usher people in the right direction more often than not. It's just mind boggling to me. I was like, the, the more I unlocked, I, I just kept telling myself was like, I'm going to get completely lost in the sauce here later on. There's, there's no way I'm going to be able to keep track of everything, but the game, it was almost like the game was like, no, I got you, boo. I got you. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just very singular. Like it, it's cool. It's just a very cool game. And I, uh, and I, you know, I think it's very impressive. You know, I personally was looking for a little bit more to chew on, but you know, that doesn't mean that the game is not still extraordinarily well-made and very easy to recommend, um, to, to just about anybody. Uh, I want to quickly mention the boss fights, except for the last one are all really great. Um, the, the final kind of boss is more of an encounter. Was it? I better say it wasn't even really a fight necessarily. Yeah. It was just <laughs> it's it was slightly more than like a QTE. It was it wasn't even it didn't feel like a fight like the other bosses felt like a fight. Right. It felt more like just an extended puzzle section with a couple instances of, you know, remotely tightly timed events. Right. But it was still 
it was still really cool. It would have been nice though if the final fight did feel a little bit more. I mean, it's kind of hard to feel like there's a lot of tension involved when there's no real life or death. There's no true fail state in the game. You can't be killed. You can just kind of be knocked back a little bit for all intents and purposes. Um, But yeah, considering the way the final boss, the final character was presented, um, yeah, they could have done a little bit, but I mean, that's a, another small nitpick. Yeah. It, well, and because all the other ones are great and like the, the thing about they it are, is they're really fun. And the, and the thing about it is, is like, you know, everything we've, we've been saying too, like we already, we've said like, this is a one button game, meaning that those boss fights are also one button boss fights. And like the game even explores satisfying combat with one button and you know, like they're they're you know, the game doesn't at root have combat in the moment to moment, but in those boss fights, you are performing combat and it's very satisfying and, and again, cool. Um, yeah. so I, I really commend the game for that too. Um, another thing that we should say, um, you know, is, is the, the switch version runs really well for the most part. Um, you know, the, the, the whole mechanic of like jumping in and out of the worlds needs to be instantaneous for the game to even work at all. Really. Um, if there was even like any sort of like load between that happening, it just would not have worked. So the fact that they managed to get that running fairly well on switch is impressive. There were a few parts that were kind of framey, yeah, but to, for me, toward the end, it was toward the busy end. Where, sections, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there were a couple times, just a couple, but the the game did. Like, I, I lost quite a few frames on a couple occasions, but the game picked right back up, and I kept on with my adventure. So, uh, I mean, that's really it. The game never crashed on me, which I mean, in an under four hour adventure, I certainly hope that's the case. But yeah, in terms of the tactical prowess, everything loaded up. Uh, there, there's a little bit of a load time when you first boot the it's game It's a pretty up. long initial load. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, uh, I didn't really have any issues with the technical performance whatsoever. If I wanted to be like an act, like an absolute frame Nazi, I could be like, you know, yeah, you know, jumping in between. It wasn't quite as smooth as the PlayStation, but it's fine. It really is. It's perfectly fine on the Nintendo Switch. I enjoyed every second I played this game. Yeah, I mean it's it's what you I I think it's it's what you expect from like a a good port when I uh, some of the games that we've compared it to the sort of like place that this game occupies is stuff like yeah. Tunic and Death Store like the Switch ports of Tunic and Death Store are also somewhat compromised by being on the Switch but they're done with care and the game is still totally there you know like does it yeah. run better on other platforms of course it's also if you have an xbox if you have game pass it is on game pass as well so you can play the game as part of that too if you have another platform but for people who prefer to play these games on switch um you know you'll you'll be happy to know that the game is in fine form on switch and in fact um the developers have said that like they're they're even going to further optimize post launch the switch version of the game so that's also yeah, that's also comforting to know. If I were going to have one big downside is with games like this, as cool as they are and as satisfying and as fun and as uh, mentally stimulating as they are, there's it just stinks that with games like these, there's zero replay value. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, fantastic games, but this is not a game that 
you know, if if four hours seems like a little bit too uh, too small in terms of your your dollars to hour ratio, uh, there's unfortunately not a lot of extra stuff to do after. I mean, you can replay through the game to find all 11 of those collectibles, all 11, 12 of those collectibles, but that's that's kind of it. Uh, there's mm-hmm. not really too much off the beaten path, not really too much side stuff, but I really hope that doesn't deter you from checking out because the game that is here is again, masterfully well-made and genuinely one of my favorite puzzle games on the Nintendo switch. I got Patrick's Parabox earlier this year. I played this one. This has been a, a really good year for puzzle games on the Nintendo switch. Yep. Easy, easy recommend. And if y'all are playing it, let us know uh, what you think about it. We'd like to, we'd love to chat with you about it. Yeah, let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter. Join the conversation over in Discord. Uh, But, you know, for our first indie showcase of Spooky Season, we don't go full spooky. The game can certainly be unsettling in places that there's some weird, bizarre, surreal stuff that goes on, but the game itself isn't really, you know, scary per se. I mean, there's no ghosts running around. <laughs> that's that's true. This is another like when we were thinking about um, spooky segments. You know, we we always take spooky season very seriously here at All In, and when we we're thinking of um, yeah, arguably too seriously, um, <laughs> and we were thinking of things that we wanted to do this month. Um, cause you know, as y'all know, the way we do it, we do spooky segments every single week in the month of October. Um, we were like, what are like some of the things we, we haven't done? What are some top fives we haven't done somehow inexplicably, Eric, we haven't talked about ghosts yet on the show. What? Don't understand it. Somehow it hasn't <laughs> happened, but we're going to remedy that this year, 2023 spooky season, the first uh, spooky episode of spooky season. We are counting down the top five ghosts in Nintendo history. All right, Eric, the top five ghosts. What are the rules, my friend? <laughs> well, for this top five, we are, of course, talking about those spooky apparitions that have appeared to us throughout the years in various Nintendo games. We are talking about any character that has ever been specifically identified as a ghost. But outside of that, we are talking about characters who are spirits of once living beings that still exist within the corporeal realm. So that does disqualify certain things. Like we're not going to be talking about neon white because I mean, we're, we're not even dealing with the corporeal realm at that point. And it also disqualifies things like elemental spirits. So spirit in the mouse, you're also not going to be uh, hearing us talk about games like those either. We are talking about the spirits of once living beings that are now shackled to the corporeal plane bound to earth with unfinished business and intent to scare the pants off all the living. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, y'all know what a ghost is, you know, quite, quite simply, (laughs) you know what a ghost is. Um, so I'll kick off my list with number five and, and I'll, I'll say too, um, my list is, is actually, and this is a tough one to put together. turns out there's a lot of ghosts, um, dude. Yeah. When we started talking about this, I looked and all of a sudden I was like, Oh no. Right. Oh no. Look at all the ghosts. There's a lot. There's a lot, <laughs> but I did try to keep mine as much as possible. I did have one exception, but, um, 
as much as possible, all of my games are actually like Nintendo published characters from like Nintendo published games. So to kick off my list, my number five is a character by the name of John Ramey, who most people don't know who that is, but that is the protagonist of a game called Geist um, on the GameCube. Uh, the GameCube cult classic. A lot of people should play, guys. That's a game that needs a remake or a remaster, man. Eh, My word. Probably not. It's probably fine. You could probably just leave it where it is. It's fine. I, I, I would like it to be like you know made available in some way so that people can. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if if it's the kind of thing like you know, Geist is a fine game. It's not like. It's not like incredible. I've always had a fondness for it just because the concept is so weird. So this dude, John Ramey, he's a scientist, silent protagonist, kind of Gordon Freeman type. Um, mm-hmm. And like in the beginning of the game, he he's also like a sort of, he belongs to this like counter-terrorist organization, um, ends up getting captured. And in the beginning of the game is captured by this like corporation who is separating soldiers' souls from their bodies in order to take their ghosts, their spirits, and turn them into, like, spectral war... I think they're actually called spectral ops warriors. Um, and that's kind of, like, the plot setup of, of Geist, and this happens to the main character, John Ramey. Um, so, you know, early on in the game, you become a ghost, and you play the rest of the game as a ghost, and the big sort of, like, uh, you know, gameplay gimmick of Geist is that as this ghost, you're able to possess items and people in the world around you. Um, as the ghost, you're incredibly like weak and underpowered, but when you're able to, you know, possess other soldiers or possess items in the world, all of a sudden you've got this unique gameplay hook that takes it above being just a kind of generic first person shooter. Um, you know, again, I have a, a big fondness for it as a shooter. It's just okay. But, uh, but I still, I still love guys and I'll take really any excuse to, to talk about it. And it had a really cool multiplayer mode, uh, actually. So, um, you know, I, it just, I've always got a soft spot for it and this was my perfect opportunity <laughs> to shout it out. <laughs> Man, the mid two thousands was a really interesting time for games like Geist and psyops and fear and, and stuff like that. These really like kind of heady, uh, like Marines and special forces guys with the, ESP and psychokinetic powers and stuff like that. But uh, guys, I'm glad you brought up guys. That game definitely needs more love. Yeah. If not here, then where, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for my number five, I'm going to go ahead and get it out of the way. My number five is the good old boo from the Super Mario Brothers franchise. And in terms of like personal relevance, Uh, Like we've seen, you and I have probably experienced at this point, literally tens of thousands of boos within Nintendo games. Mm -hmm. But A, yes, the ubiquity, just the iconic uh, standing that the character has. But the reason that I actually put it here above other iconic ghosts is I just love the creation story of the yeah. boo which made its debut in super mario brothers 3 on the nes back in 1990 the character was actually called teresa in japan but the very quickly just the development story of boo is 
we all know that very famously the boo will chase you when you turn your back on it, but when you're facing it, it covers up its face and acts very shy. That is because one of the programmers who designed the character uh, modeled that behavior apparently after his wife, which behind his back would act a certain way, but face to face, you guys get the picture, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, like the you say, like one of the you're talking about Takashi Tezuka, who's like you know a legend, and Miyamoto. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to throw his name. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, like it, it's a funny idea because Miyamoto and Tezuka are still besties. Like they, they yeah. still like they're they're just like ride or die. You know, they're still both at Nintendo legends. You know, in in the game, but like, so it is kind of funny the idea that like. Miyamoto would have this sort of like notion from like, you know, Tezuka's wife being mad at him because he was working long hours at Nintendo, you know? So yeah, it's a funny little story. I love it. But I mean, of course, throughout Mario's history, we've seen big boos. We've seen circle boos. We've seen dino boos. We've seen King boos. So there's been, so, but here's my boo listing. Cause I mean, we're a Nintendo podcast. We're talking about ghosts it had to be on the list. Nice. Nice. Well, going into my number four, um, you know, you're going to notice this is a pretty, this is a pretty Seth list. Um, so, you know, I, that's the point, man. Yeah. This is a very like Seth list. So my number four is a character from Majora's mask by the name of Kamaro, who's, um, a ghost that you meet in that game. And he's, it's, it's weird because, uh, he's out in Termina Field. You have to be there at a very specific time frame. Like he appears right when it turns midnight. Basically, he's just doing this weird dance in the moonlight. Um, and anybody who's played Majora's Mask and has encountered Kamaro sort of like remembers like that weird, strange dance and like the mask that you get from Kamaro after playing the Song of Healing for him is this strange. Yeah, like it's just his like head on a mask that Link puts on. It's like really weird. Um, and, and that, that was always striking to me, but I like, um, Kamaro's like story because he, he does this weird dance and he had these ambitions of like, you know, spreading his dance across the world and like teaching it to people and, um, you know, and, and healing the world with dance. That was his sort of life's mission. He didn't get to carry it out. He ended up dying before he could teach it to anybody. And so like Link does with so many other characters in that game, um, Link helps him and Link does teach his dance to other people. And I think it's a really like in, in a very like short amount of time in a very bite-sized contextualized package in this character, it talks about the sort of like unfinished business kind of motif that a lot of ghost stories have. Um, and I, I don't know, I've always really vibed with that. I always thought that was really cool. And it's just like part and parcel of what makes Majora's Mask so special to take this weird little character and say a lot with very little. So, um, yeah, shout outs to Kamaro, the strange dancing, like pot bellied man in Termina Field. <laughs> <laughs> well, for my number four. I honestly didn't expect so much of my personal top five to revolve around the plumber. But when it comes to those ghosts, those spectral entities that really stand out in my mind, in my history with Nintendo games, it's just kind of turned out that way. 
but I certainly wouldn't have expected one of those characters to have come from a game in which Mario teams up with the Raving Rabbids. Mm. Mm -hmm. My number four is Phantom from both Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle and the uh, recently released Rayman DLC for Sparks of Hope. They knew they had something good on their hands when they created this character. The third area of Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle is this wonderfully spooky themed area. And, And at the end of it is this phenomenal boss fight one of my favorite boss fights on the nintendo switch and at the center of the boss fight is of course the boss himself the operatic soprano tenor um he's probably more of a soprano yeah more of the operatic soprano the phantom himself the rabid ghost with a nice big bell bottom thing with a thing he's he's just amazing He really is. And I was so happy that they brought him back in the final DLC for Sparks of Hope with Rayman. Uh, He once again is brings a memorable turn. I was honestly more excited to see the Phantom than I was Rayman in that DLC. And he's once again, fantastic. Uh, uh, One of my favorite bosses, like I said, on the Nintendo Switch, one of my favorite characters within one of my favorite franchises on the Nintendo Switch. The Phantom is just an absolute joy. And if uh, David and company are able to make a third one, I really, really hope that he comes back again uh, with another, hopefully, Grant Kirkhope pinned opera. Yeah, now you, you just got me trying to remember what the Phantom's singing voice sounded like to like try to pin where his <laughs> vocal range is, but maybe as a tenor, I don't know. But in any case, yeah, the Phantom's great. Um, he, I mean, that's like the best part of that first Mario Rabbids game for it my is. money. And it really is. Yeah, I mean, they knew they had to bring him back for the, the, the DLC being sort of revolved around the Phantom uh, is great. And to be honest, like, as yeah, as cool as it was that Rayman was coming back, I was more excited that the Phantom was coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they did a proper like play on because he's called the Phantom, obviously. Uh-huh. So the fact that the DLC happens within this big opera house style area that he's trying to just gave it super like Phantom of the Opera vibes uh, for that DLC, which as cool as the area that you find him in the first game was, I love the whole just over the top spooky vibes, but having a literal kind of like haunted opera house for this phantom character was just oh chef's kiss yeah well going into my number three uh this is where my sort of mario representation comes from um herself kind of a boo my number three is lady bow uh from the first paper oh. mario very yeah. nice yeah very nice my um my second favorite uh you know, party member in, in that game. Um, my first, I, I'm always going to have a soft spot for black Lester. Um, but, <laughs> but lady bow is like, she's, she's, first of all, her personality is incredible. Cause she's this total, like prima Donna, you know, feisty sort of her, like her main move is to slap the enemies. Like, you know, multiple times she's got her own Butler, a boo Butler who is named bootler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is just fantastic. Um, That's so good. 
Yeah, she's sort of like the the leader of the booze, like in in the Boo Mansion area, and joins your uh, your party. And she also she's incredibly useful because her uh, sort of overworld ability and uh, an ability that she can use in combat is to make Mario invisible. So in the overworld, it allows you to sort of like pass through certain objects, evade enemies, whatever. But in battle, it'll make Mario invisible and invulnerable for a turn. So incredibly useful. Um, and you know, when I think about the thousand year door and I love the thousand year door, one of the complaints about that game, it's, it's great, but a lot of the party members of thousand year door are kind of just functional copies of the party members of the first paper Mario, um, which, you know, they're great characters, but functionally they operate almost exactly the same with very rare exception. There are a few characters that do different things, but most of them do literally the same thing. And so I love Vivian in thousand year door. Don't get me wrong. I know some people will be like, (laughs) what about Vivian? Um, but Vivian, you know, from an actual like function standpoint is very, very similar to lady Bo before. Um, so I got to give the nod to the, to the OG and I love her and she pops up in thousand year door as well for a little, you know, sticks her head into that too. And, um, I just, I just really love her. I love her personality. I love her, you know, her utility. Uh, she's great. And the, and just a wonderful character design. All the, all the party members have wonderful character designs. Um, yeah, she's great. Shout outs to lady Bo. Nice. Uh, might be talking about the Paper Mario franchise a little bit later, mm. but but going into my number three uh, is a character that a lot of you guys are probably completely unfamiliar with, and that's fair. But my number three is Baron Von Blubba, the ghost whale from the Bubble Bobble series, actually. Okay. So I have a very soft spot in my heart for the Bubble Bobble series. And I remember playing it back on the NES. And Baron Von Blubba was essentially the hurry up function in the game. If you were taking too long on one of Bubble Bobble's very famous single screen arcade stages, if you were taking too long, then the Baron would come out and basically just start attacking you relentlessly until you either died or you beat the stage. There was no way to defeat him. And it is the first time in my life that I can remember thinking I was having a heart attack because there's this creepy little jingle that precedes the Baron showing up and all of a sudden he just starts relentlessly chasing you around the screen. And that was like, that was functionally for young Eric, like Mr. X running after you in resident evil two. That was like the tyrant running after you in resident evil three. That was like, I like death coming after you in vampire survivors. It just felt like this inescapable. It was like Thanos it was like, it is inevitable. I know it, you know, <laughs> through the through the eyes of a middle-aged man, it doesn't seem nearly as threatening, but to young me, it it certainly made quite an impression. And I had to put him at number 3 because he also appears as the secret final form of the last boss in Bubble Bobble 2 Rainbow Islands, which is one of my favorite arcade games of all time. Nice. So uh yeah, big soft spot in my heart for the Bubble Bobble series and basically the 
scariest character within the entire franchise, the ghost whale Baron Von Blubba. Nice, nice. So going into my number two, uh, this is the one third party uh, representative here on my list. My number two, and this is going to be a tough one to talk about without spoiling too much, but I'm, my number two is Missile from Ghost Trick Phantom Detective. Um, y'all know how much I love that game. Recently came out uh, on the Nintendo Switch, which made me very happy, and I know that some people in our community are playing the game for the first time, so I, don't, again, don't want to spoil anything, but Missile is a very adorable Pomeranian uh, based off of Shutakumi's actual dog, which is great. Um, and, like, this is... I'll just put it to you this way. Like, this is a game where the death of a dog can be made palatable. You know, like, like normally that's the kind of thing that would like break your heart, but Missile is so unfailingly loyal and so like just completely selfless, only cares about his, his owner, only cares about Camilla and Lynn. That's it. End all be all the lengths that Missile goes to in order to protect the people that he loves, um, is just second to none. Missile is the best character in the game. And, um, you know, and, and for the vast majority of the game, Missile is a ghost. Um, so yeah, I just like, again, to say anything more than that would spoil it, but, um, but play Ghost Trick. It's an incredible game. It's one of my favorite games of all time. And, and Missile is, uh, is a huge part of that. He's, he's a a major, major part of the game. (laughs) Well, can you tell that we're both dog people? (laughs) My number two is also a good boy. Okay. Yep. (laughs) I mean, it's literally Nintendo's ghost franchise. I know we talked about the booze a little earlier, but I couldn't not properly put Luigi's Mansion on this list. And starting with Dark Moon on the 3DS, which we are about to get a remake of on the Nintendo Switch, one of the goodest boys in Nintendo history first showed up and I had him on my list when we did top five good boys and I'm putting him here. My number two is Polterpup. And so Missile was on my list for that one too. He was my number one, I think actually on that list. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, man. I absolutely adore Polterpup and especially uh, the fact that Luigi seems to have properly adopted him in the third game just made it all the better in Luigi's Mansion, Dark Moon, Polter Pup was basically just this adorable plot device who kept doing things that caused Luigi to essentially to have to continue playing the game. He'd playfully take keys or hit triggers that would cause Luigi to have to do certain things, but I could never be mad at him. He was just too darn adorable. It was, and it was really cool to see Luigi interacting with a character like this he always interacted with characters kind of more on his i would say intellectual level but he was always with daisy or, or mario or other it was really cool to see him uniquely and singularly interact with you know dogs cats pet style characters to see how he would be around characters like that and i just i love the dynamic between the two of them the fact that luigi is the eternal uh, <laughs> reluctant hero 
The I'm not going to say coward because he, Luigi has done too many heroic things for that. But I will say the eternal reluctant hero and the fact that basically his adopted dog is a ghost. I just I I, I love that so much. Everything about that is Chef's kiss, and Polter Pup is the best. He's the best. Very, very, very good boy indeed. Well, before very we good uh, boy. before we get into our number one, Zarek, do we have a few honorable mentions? Yes, of course we do. Guys, I'm sorry. Inky, Inky Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde are not going to be our number ones. I'm sorry. But yes, they are iconic. Of They're course. They're absolutely iconic. Uh, so we will shout them out, but I'm, I'm sorry. They're, they're famous, arguably the most iconic ghosts in the history of video games, full stop. But for us, for this top five, not number one. So it's a Nintendo top five. It wouldn't really make a ton of sense. Even I, I get it. There's plenty of Pac-Man games on Nintendo systems, but it does feel you don't really associate Pac-Man with Nintendo specifically, right? So yeah, and there was one game that I thought about putting on my top five, and maybe and probably would have been on my top five had. I had the fact that this character is a ghost been a spoiler for the plot. Oh, so, um, yeah. So there was a game that came out this year where the realization that one of the, the main characters in the story is actually not alive. So Mm. uh, I don't want to say any more than that. Uh, do you happen to have any inkling as to what I'm talking about, Seth? No. No, not off the top of my head. Is it something that I played? Yes, it's something that, and it's uh, it's something that we both loved a lot. I'd have to think about it. It's not coming to mind immediately. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I don't want to give you any more hints, lest I give it away to anybody else. But uh, also, I I did kind of want to just shout out, like, when you become a ghost in Among Us, I thought that's funny. Mm, Yeah, it is kind of funny. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, like, uh, Mario Wonder becoming a ghost in Mario Wonder. That that looks like it's yeah. going to be kind of funny in a similar, in a similar vein. Well, yeah. I mean, when it comes to Mario, there are just again just so many other ghosts. You got like the Boulder Geist from Mario Galaxy. I mean, we could have talked about Boo Mario because mm-hmm. in Mario Galaxy he becomes a Boo himself. There are so many different ghosts just surrounding the plumber. That uh, I mean, we we could have easily just made this list top five ghosts from the Mario universe. Um, I mean, like you said, you talked about Vivian and man, and all this kind of stuff. So a ton, a ton of stuff. Wisp from Animal Crossing yeah, is another absolutely list, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah honorable mention. Uh, and uh, I want to shout out the the Sunken from the Oxen Free Games. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Very prolific ghosts in the oxen free games. That's uh, a big part of those games. Um, I also, I, I wanted to shout out wrinkly Kong um, <laughs> from you know. DK 64. Yeah. Cause like it is kind of just, it is just kind of funny. Like the lineage of that, like wrinkly Kong dies, but then like still yeah. becomes a character somewhere along the way as a ghost. <laughs> so that's just kind of funny. Like, I'm dead. I still got to be here and work. Oh yeah. So that's just that always makes me laugh. And then I'll I'll just quickly shout out Mia Faye from from Ace Attorney, um, who at the very this is not a huge spoiler. It happens literally in the beginning of the first game, 
Mia Fey dies. Her younger sister, Maya, is framed for the murder, and she winds up actually communicating uh, with Phoenix, because uh, she was Phoenix's mentor before she died, um, you know, communicating basically through through him to help prove her younger sister's innocence. And then later, when you get to Trials and Tribulations, uh, you actually get to play as as Mia. So um, I love that character. She's She's a great character and, you know, had to shout her out. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fatal frame ghosts are terrifying. We, we had to shout out a couple like proper, like jump out of your socks ghosts as well. It can't all be funny, family friendly, you know, good boys and, and good times. We had to shout out at least a couple uh, ghosts that do not mean you uh, well. Yeah. Well, to, to get into my number one, this is this is honestly probably, you know, obvious to the point of of anti-climax at this point but uh but my number one is gengar i mean like yeah of course it's gengar yeah. it's it was always gonna be gengar right i mean like there there's a lot of really cool ghost pokemon by this point like palisand and decidueye and even some good Desui ones and like there's a lot of really really cool trevenant i love trevenant um but i, I look at the full breadth of ghost pokemon now and even amongst all of the really cool ones that exist now, Gengar just still stands out. Nah, she's just, I, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause like Gengar is just one of those things that he's worked his way onto many of my lists. He's my favorite Pokemon always has been for, you know, over 25 years now. And he is just like mischievous and scary and fun. Like all at once, the most, the most simple design imaginable, maybe one of the simplest Pokemon designs, period. And it just works. I love when you can take a design that simple and make it, frankly, iconic. Just simply Gengar's smile and eyes tells you everything you need to know about that character. I could paint that smile and eyes alone on a wall without any sort of like shape or definition to a body and you would still know that's Gengar. You know, like, it's just, I, I don't know. Like, I just adore that character. I've said it on the show before. Anytime I play a new Pokemon game, a new generation, my party is five brand new Pokemon of that generation and Gengar. And Gengar. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. I don't think I've ever asked you this before. Okay. Uh, what did you think when Mega Gengar became a thing? I like Mega Gengar. Um... You know, to me, that that kind of gets into, like, you know, a little bit of over-design. Like, cause he's weird. He's kind mm-hmm. of, like, hunched over with, like, the, the spikes elongated and stuff. And, you know, make him... I, I much prefer Gigantamax Gengar. Um, yeah. You know, where they just, like, accentuate the big old mouth, you know? And yeah. Just becomes, like, this monstrous, you know, thing that's going to eat you alive. And I, I prefer Some of those that. G-Max Pokemon designs were amazing. Yeah. Of course, you know, me being a big Kaiju fan. But, yeah, I like what they did with uh, with Gengar with G-Max. But, yeah, whenever they come up with something new, like the Megaforms, the G-Max, Gengar always gets something to himself or herself. Yeah. Yeah. To to itself, I guess. To it, to um, it's, I mean, it's yeah. a ghost. I mean. Yeah. So, yeah. Itself. Yeah. My favorite, always going to be my favorite, had to be my number one. Sorry that y'all probably saw it coming a mile away. <laughs> well, 
Uh, we're about to take a hard left turn for a second because, like I said earlier, we're going to come back to the Paper Mario franchise. And I apologize, but I am going to be spoiling a three-year-old game. I didn't want to spoil a game that came out this year, but I will be spoiling a three-year-old game. My number one is Bobby the Bomb from Paper Mario the Origami King. So skip skip ahead maybe a couple minutes if you don't want to be spoiled on the Origami King. If you haven't played it yet, you should. It's genuinely super underrated, and Bobby's a huge reason why. So just, yeah. you know, spoiler warning. <laughs> yes. So very early on, you meet this character who's just named Babam, and the only even remotely unique thing about this character is that it's a Babam without a fuse. It was a character that I really wondered about when we saw him in the trailers, because in previous Paper Mario games, they, I mean, they were still recognizably Mario enemies, but they still had their own individual design flair going on. You talk about uh, Madame Bo and, you know, Goombella and, and all the others. They were still recognizably themselves, but the only thing that made Bobom or Bobby, as he would come to be called, the only thing that made him unique, visually at least, was... Uh, was the fact that he didn't have his fuse attached to him. But this simplicity belied arguably one of the best characters that Nintendo has ever written. And I say that because you get a little ways into the game and your main companion for this venture, uh, Olivia, who is the sister of the titular origami King winds up becoming trapped underneath an immovable rock. and you wind up going on a quest to find Bobby's fuse. Come to find out that Bobby decided to sacrifice himself to blow himself up, to remove the rock, to save Olivia. And it is for my money, genuinely one of the most heartfelt scenes in the history of Nintendo games. It is absolutely beautiful and once you realize what's going on and it's permanent i bobby's death genuinely still affects me three years later it was just so really well handled however you run around the adventure continues you even meet new friends but you can go back to this little ninja themed theme park yeah, and you can get photos taken with your uh, with your companions, with your party members. And one of the little secrets in the game is you take a photo, and once the photo comes back, you see Bobby there. You see the ghost of Bobby hanging with you. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely had to put my controller down. Because even after everything, he was still traveling with you, still a companion, even after passing on, even after uh, making the ultimate sacrifice, he was still adventuring alongside you. He was still with you every step of the way. And again, like I'm, I guess a Mario game, you guys, and I'm genuinely getting a little emotional right here. Bobby had to be my number one. What an amazing character. Yeah, that, that game is is really underrated and and Bobby's like Bobby's character arc in that game is representative of 
kind of that game's main theme in general, which is like what like like what your purpose is and how you fit into the structure of something bigger than you. And Bobby, um, you know, yeah, the, the quest is to find Bobby's fuse or whatever in that moment. And it's like, well, Bobby's a bomb. What does a bomb do? A bomb blows up, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and and he he chose to make that change and he chose to sort of like take hold of, of his destiny, him also being like an amnesiac character as well. Um, mm-hmm. And like, yeah, just sort of, I, I think is a, a perfect representation of everything that makes that game really special. And it's a shame that people get so hung up on the non-traditional combat system. Like, I get it, but like, that game does just about everything else very, very right. So y'all should play Origami King. Yeah. Seth and I had a couple of misgivings about the, the core battle system. But one of the things that I specifically said about that game is when it came to adventuring, just that aspect of the game, it did it perfectly. And I loved how Bobby was able to take this idea of exploding, of destroying and finding a way to to use it to help of finding a way to use it to you know for something objectively good uh and and again like he's just the best he just absolutely is the best very very good game uh you know when we were talking about ghosts I, i i was fully intending to you know lean into horror and lean into spooky season i but i had to to give flowers to to the goat I mean, Bobby is amazing, and you guys should definitely check out Paper Mario the Origami King. But we would love to hear who your guys' favorite ghosts are throughout Nintendo history. Make sure to reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, Join the conversation. Join our amazing, amazing family in the Discord. It's spooky season. We're going to be talking about spooky stuff all month, so come in and drop your top five favorite ghosts. Are they all from horror games? Are they all from arcade games? Let us know. Yes, but, but Eric, uh, we we should real quick recount our list before we move on for for the people at home. Ah, yes. My number five was John Ramey from Geist. <laughs> My number five, the Boo in all its forms. My number four was the ghost of Kamaro from The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. My number four, the Phantom of the Opera of Mario Plus Rabbits. <laughs> my number three was Lady Bo from Paper Mario. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if I threw you off with my terrible singing there. All good. All good. <laughs> my number three is Baron Von Blubba from the Bubble Bobble franchise. My number two was Missile from Ghost Trick Phantom Detective. My number two is uh, Polter Pop from Luigi's Mansion. And my number one is Gengar from Pokemon. And my number one... Bobby the Babam from Paper Mario, the Origami King. But, Seth, as we get deeper into the episode, so too do we get deeper into spooky season. You know, we started off a little unsettling with uh, with Cocoon, and here we are talking about the ghosts from Nintendo past, but now we are properly steering into the hardcore spook fests, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Yeah, we wanted to do something. Um, this is something that we've thought about doing in the past, but uh, had a really good opportunity to activate this this week on the show. The concept of, you know, there are games that come out 
and we play them, and sometimes it just doesn't work out that we get to properly review them on the show, and like, why should that time just kind of come and go? Why should that moment just pass and we just never go back to it? Like, that's really unfortunate, and that sucks, and games deserve to have uh, the spotlight despite all of that. So uh, we're introducing something uh, this week on the show called Boomerang Reviews, which is the concept of, you know, throwing out our boomerang flower grabbing something from the past that we didn't get a chance to review when it came out and reviewing it now. And I'm very happy to say that our first ever Boomerang review this week on the show is on Paranormasite, The Seven Mysteries of Hanjo. Yes, welcome to All In's first ever Boomerang review. Now, the whole concept of this is that we are simply taking a previously released game that the maybe timeliness factor has kind of that ship has effectively sailed. But here we have found a perfect reason to bring it back from the past and present it to you now here in the present. Paranormous side is a perfect example of that. We are bringing it from its March 2023 release date here properly into spooky season the place where it was always meant to be played uh, other than that really uh these boomerang reviews are going to function very similarly to how our classic reviews do and in that uh for our classic reviews we do not give numbered scores unlike most review outlets so we don't do like four stars out of five or a seven out of ten or anything like that we just feel that games as a medium are just far too complicated too intuitive and are just too layered mean too many things to too many people to distill them down to a single score in addition to that, we always break our reviews down into four segments for the sake of listenability and for the sake of structuring this for our own sakes. We always talk about the game in terms of four key pillars, that being the game's narrative, the game's presentation, its music, and then ultimately the gameplay. And I'm really excited to get into this one. Paranormicide isn't a game that I really know too much about personally. I'm really excited to hear what my co-host has to say about this spooky endeavor, especially as it relates to the narrative, because the game was actually nominated for Best Storytelling at the Golden Joysticks. So I'm really interested to see how this part of the game holds up and how the whole game really holds up. But my friend, I leave it to you. Tell us about Paranormasite. Yeah. So before we get too deep into it, I'm just going to let y'all know um, a few things, a couple of disclaimers. First of all, uh, I recommend that you play this game. It's only $20. Uh, it's published by Square Enix. It's a, if you are a fan of like Danganronpa or like the, uh, like the Zero Escape games, like these sort of like murder mystery detective killing game, you know, games, uh, you should buy and play Paranormicide. And the reason I'm saying this at the front is because the game really works best when you know nothing going in. Um, so if if those games, if games like that are your jam, then just spend the $20. It's worth it. Just go ahead and, and play it. 
um, before you before you listen to to this because I'm not going to overtly spoil anything. But like again, coming in blind is really is really going to help. Um, now, aside from that. Uh, there is a lot to say about this game. Another thing that is really neat about Paranormasite, and, and another reason that I sort of wanted to make sure that we highlighted the game on the show, is because not only is it still one of my favorite games that I've played this year, and y'all know how crazy this year has been, um, but it actually marks the return of a person whose career is not very well known um, over here in the West, uh, by the, a man by the name of Takanari Ishiyama, um, who actually is a, has kind of had a bit of a legendary career, uh, since the nineties and Paranormasite is like a visual novel and Ishiyama is a bit of a veteran in this space, um, started at Konami as like a sound designer and like, to, you know, worked on like the original Metal Gear Solid. Um, but he sort of, pioneered like this sort of visual novel dating sim the the first like huge visual novel dating sim that like really took off in japan was uh, a game called tokimeki memorial um and he was like the lead writer of that um eventually after sort of like spearheading that series would join this company in japan called genki uh who like over the course of the 2000s made a ton of uh mobile games for those who don't know like mobile games are massive in japan let alone like switch ds is huge but i'm talking cell phone games um that you play on like your mobile device back before they had like touchscreens and stuff um he was making like visual novels and rpgs built from the ground up for mobile games like uh eternal labyrinth and they had this series called uh movie adventure and you know he was he was making stuff like that all the way back then and was very very that stuff was very popular in japan at that time uh eventually uh in the mid 2000s he would join square enix where he was the lead on Final Fantasy XII Revenant Wings. That's the DS spinoff of Final Fantasy XII. And he made a couple of other Japan-only DS games for Square Enix. And that's sort of where he has sat, kind of in these, like, support roles for a long time until now. Um, and he's sort of making. I didn't realize a, we were getting Professor Seth today. This is awesome. <laughs> he he's sort of making a bit of a triumphant return with Paranormasite because Square Enix is saying, "Hey, uh, let's give you like a a budget, and let's give you like a very small team, and let's let you kind of go back to your roots and make the sorts of games that you really cut your teeth on and helped pioneer." So. Like, Paranormasite might be just a little $20 game that Square Enix released with no real marketing, but, like, it's quite a significant release for video game history. So uh, I just wanted people to to be aware of that because um, it, it's it's maybe more significant than people realize. Um, but Paranormasite, it is a visual novel. Uh, it is a sort of, like, meta-narrative, fourth-wall-breaking uh, visual novel that is part like killing game Danganronpa style part detective mystery uh, sort of thing. It takes place in the eighties in the Sumida ward of Tokyo, Japan. Um, and it has many characters that you play. You play as all of them throughout the course of the game. It's got this sort of like weaving and winding narrative. Um, and it's sort of centered around these these seven mysteries of Hanjo is the, uh, is the subtitle of the game. And these are sort of like these 
old Japanese like folklore, you know, tales um, that these like curses are revolved around. Um, and the game sets up really early that uh, they there's basically a, a way that you can sort of bring back somebody from the dead. It's called like the rite of resurrection. Um, but the only way to do it is to find these like curse stones and kill other bearers of curse stones and collect their soul dregs from it. So it sounds weird. It is. Um, and you essentially are on this one night in the eighties in Japan, uh, kind of set loose in the, you know, in this kind of like, you know, district of Tokyo, uh, where there are other people who are trying to kill other people and you're trying to figure out what, like, like what their curse is, what kind of triggers their curse stone, because another, you know, sort of important thing is all of them have very specific triggers. Uh, the stone bearer has to like be able to get their target to do something before they can kill them. Um, so for example, like one of the early ones is you have to get them to turn around and like walk away from you. Right. Um, there's another one who, uh, you know, like if the person can hear them say, you know, what they're saying to them, then that's their trigger. Um, you know, little stuff like that. So it becomes this like interesting sort of like killer be killed hunger game sort of style, you know, thing in like eighties, you know, Japan, based on, like, Edo period, you know, uh, mythology and, like, lore, and it's sort of steeped in all of that. There's a lot of, like, intrigue, and there's a lot of, like, sort of, like, lore and context. You have, like, these files upon files. It's a visual novel. You're going to be doing a lot of reading, right? But the story that they're telling here has got so many layers to it and I'll talk about this more when we get to the gameplay, but like the, the way that the story unfolds um, and the way that the game sort of forces you to think outside of the box to like see where this narrative goes from all of these different perspectives is what is so special about this game. It takes the concept of a visual novel and goes about as deep as you could imagine it going. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, I will say specifically when it comes to uh, like the whole triggers aspect. I do remember you bringing that up because, you know, when you originally played it earlier this year, you did talk about it briefly here on the show. And I remember you mentioning that part of the game specifically. And I just, I, I thought that was so cool. That was something that I experienced. I didn't play the full version of the game, but I did play the demo of the Land's End Club, which is a you know a similarly a very Rampa style visual novel game. Oh yeah, World's End Club. Yeah 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 yeah. I was like, what, yeah. are you what did about? I say? Yeah, Lands End Club. Lands End Club. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, World's End Club. Uh, and very similarly, all the characters have uh, different triggers, different weird kind of random things that if they do then X can happen. And I don't want to get more into it than that, but I just, I really did think that that was super interesting is it's not just as simple as walking up and killing somebody. It's not just as simple as, you know, walking up and shooting somebody in the head. You, you have to force people into these hyper precise, albeit 
fairly common in most cases actions. And I just, I thought that was super, super intriguing. And just saying that that was also present in this game, I was really interested to see, and I, I would be really interested to see kind of the, the narrative meat that they're mm-hmm. able to get off of that, because something like that just seems like the different character interactions that you can potentially have when you have something like that, when you have a rule like that governing your universe just seems so incredibly intriguing to me. Yeah. They, they get a lot of like good mileage out of it. There's some really cool, really cool moments in the game that, that I won't spoil all of them. Uh, I'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to gameplay, but um, when it comes to like, yeah, like, like story, um, one of the cool things about this is like, if you are like a Japanophile, if you're somebody who loves Japanese culture and like, especially like this sort of Edo period, uh, Japanese culture, this game is like steeped in, um, the game has got this excellent, like almost mini encyclopedia, um, sort of like file system where not only is it obviously going to catalog the seven mysteries of Hanjo that, you know, the game is based around so that you can read them, get to know them. That's going to be really important because it'll sort of like show you, uh, it'll kind of clue you into like how some of these curses are triggered. Um, but like in addition to that, like they separate it. Like there's also just a culture and society thing where they just talk about, you know, the the culture of that area of Japan. They talk about like the uh, the history, the important people, newspaper articles, things like this. Uh, you've got like persons of interest, uh, phenomena, curses. Um, in addition to your standard like how to play gameplay guide, and in addition to your standards for like the visual novel genre, like being able to go back and look at old conversations that you. You've had and and things like that but i mean like if you really if you're the type of person that likes to just like get into the weeds and like learn about this stuff and like kind of in a palatable way get to absorb some of this culture uh the game is great at that and uh are you trying to say that a visual novel has people covered if they like to read yeah, if you if you like to read, but it's interesting <laughs> stuff. Like it's it's really interesting stuff, and like the game, uh, because it is rooted in like the game's gameplay as well. Because like you do have to familiarize yourself with these things for various facets of the gameplay. Uh, they incentivize you to read. So you know, again, if if you don't like reading in your games, you're probably not going to like this. Um, like it's probably not going to change your mind. But you know. As far as that goes, it, it takes that concept of visual novel and really like feasts with it. Like it, it really, even though this is like a $20 kind of budget small team making this, I mean, it feels like a full, you know, like a very rich uh, narrative, uh, despite the fact that it also, I think the game is, you'll probably finish it between 10 and 12 hours. Um, it's not like overly long, uh, but they really do a lot here. Uh, so, you know, again, I don't want to overtly spoil too much of the story, but it's, it's of course, excellent. Of course. It's, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Uh, I will say, um, there, there's a, I, I guess a little bit of a content warning to, um, you know, they, it's, it's a mature rated game. So there are mature themes. There is, you know, uh, talks of things like sexual assault. Uh, there's, you know, obviously death and stuff like this. There's some disturbing imagery, uh, I was about to say, yeah, from know, what I hear, the game can be proper disturbing in a couple places. 
Yeah, so do be aware of that, you know, going into this is a very mature game. This is a very sort of in the in the way of like the Japanese horror, um, you know, this this is, you know, this is very much in yeah. line with that. But it's but it's great. Yeah, well talking about the presentation of the game, visual novels typically aren't really pushing the boundaries or pushing the technical prowess of many of the consoles that they appear on. Not necessarily super cinematic. A lot of them are shown in, a, you know, kind of a 2D art, maybe even comic book style aesthetic. And especially being a, a budget title, even from a, a massive publisher like Square Enix, just the little bit that I've seen aesthetically from this game does look like it it does kind of steer toward that more like 2D anime style maybe even comic book style aesthetic. Yeah, it's got a little bit of that like Junji Ito, you know, Japanese horror kind of look to it. Uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Um it's got like a I I really like it though. It's uh because you're in like a 3D space. Like you actually can often like have full 360 degree you know movement you can really kind of look around the entire space around you so typically it's 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 typically like 2d characters in a 3d space and they have like these kind of thick outlines like it almost looks like you just have manga characters superimposed like a cardboard paper mario or something like yeah like like junji ito does paper mario like or something like that, you know. It's that's that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird, but uh, but it's it's really effective. There isn't much in the way of like voice acting beyond you know the the odd you know, um, you know the, the odd sort of like voice line Nani? kind of yeah, kind of like just a little voice line that's thrown in there. They're they're not fully reading off the the script. That would be an incredible amount of work, um, you know. But yeah. um. But, but, you know, the, the presentation is very, very, like, clean and well done. It looks great, runs great on Switch. You know, it, you don't have to worry about anything like that. Um, it's also the sort of thing where, like, if you wanted to play it on, like, another device, like a mobile device, it is on iPhone and, like, Android. Um, it's great on that, too. So... Like that's that's another thing. You you can like buy it uh, chapter by chapter, I think, on the phone. But if you buy it on Switch, obviously you just get the whole thing. So I mean, yeah. play it on Switch. So in terms of like, I mean, visual novels tend to have a lot of menus and UI yeah. and uh, anything spectacular with those, or just kind of your mm. your standard fare blocky menus. Yeah, I mean, like the the menu and UI is like uh, it's it is functional. Like it's, it is what you need it to be. Um, there is a neat kind of thing where, you know, because you're engaging with this world through the lens of like many different characters. Um, I, I don't know exactly how many, probably between like eight to a dozen different characters by the end of it. Um, you're, you're, you're sort of like a, like an overseer of this story versus, like there isn't like a main protagonist of the story. You're kind of just piecing mm-hmm. together it's the story. It's an ensemble, yeah. It's an ensemble and like the the presentation the way that it's like set up is there's actually this like storyteller character who is walking you along and in fact um when you like mess up on like a a section or something like that he will kind of bring you back out and like kind of hint and you know hint you and push you in the right direction and stuff. So uh because of that the the menus actually 
like it, it sort of is played into like the theming of the game because you're an outside observer. The menus actually kind of look like they're in like a CRT TV, like like a, like a CRT box or something. That's um, kind of rad. I like yeah. that. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. You know, like you, the game does little things like that to always remind you that like, Hey, like don't get too attached to like this character. You're not, you are not embodying this character you are somebody else as an outside observer of this narrative. So, and the game, you know, plays with that a whole lot. Nice. Nice. Well, I, I do like having kind of a physical manifestation of a storyteller. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> anybody yeah, who great. knows me will, you will know why I like that, but uh, that that's pretty cool. In terms of the presentation, anything else that kind of sticks out in your mind or, no, no, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's just really good, really clean, great art. You know, I, I love the way the game looks. I love the, you know, the sort of painted like 3d, you know, kind of spaces, the, you know, the hard, like thick lines on the characters. It, uh, the game looks yeah. great. Well, when it comes to the music of horror games, it can be kind of weird. Cause a lot of games that are spooky or scary, do tend to just kind of go for something atmospheric, not necessarily right. having music so much as like background noise that happens to have something resembling a melody. So what is the music like in this visual novel? You know, it's funny when I, um when I first played the game, I didn't really think twice too much about the music. I didn't really like, uh, I, I wasn't like looking at the music, I guess, analytically and really like taking notice of it because I was so tuned into like, you know, reading the text and solving the puzzles and things like this. Of course. Yeah. Uh, but listening to the music gearing up for this, uh, this boomerang review gearing up for it and listening back to the soundtrack on its own. It's really good. Um, as, especially like, like you were saying there, there are a couple a couple of the things that stand out, like whenever a sort of major revelation happens and slash or a major like death happens, there is a kind of recurring like paranormal site theme that is very effective. It's very much in line with like Ace Attorney does this as well. Whenever like whenever you yeah. got them, like there's a theme that comes, <laughs> you know, every time and like it just kind of they, they know when to hit those marks. But uh, taken on its own, the, the music is quite good. There's like twinkly kind of creepy horror you know in there there's some like uh some brooding deep like string instrumentation that kind of feels like a you know a darker sort of horror thing um yeah like listen to it on its own because you're, you're probably not going to absorb too much of it when you play but if you listen to it on its own it's actually a quite good soundtrack i i dig it a lot of instrumentals are like a lot more kind of atmospheric, a lot, you know, like people would expect from a horror movie. How would you describe the sound? I'd say both, honestly, like there's, um, I think it's like probably mostly atmospheric, but like it does not, I mean, like you'd be surprised how many, um, like how, how many actual, you know, uh, like melody driven songs there are, uh, in the game. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Maybe a nice soundtrack to have on in the background where you're handing out candy Halloween night or something. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. It's good. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it won't be soundtrack of the year, but uh, but it's good. Nice. Well, we're moving into the final act, sir. Mm-hmm. We need to hear about the gameplay. And I know, 
you know, just kind of like for a few other things when it comes to aspects of a visual novel, the, there's certainly not, to, I mean, th- this isn't an RPG deep system. This isn't, you know, Final Fantasy. This is a game where a lot of it centers around the narrative and choosing options from menus, or at least, you know, the genre is itself. But I am interested to see from a gameplay standpoint what Paranormicite does bring to the table that could help make things interesting. I imagine one of the biggest is trying to get people to do those triggers. Yes, that there is that that's about half of the the game is sort of like is getting to that place where you realize like the the curse bearers and like what that all is. Like that's kind of like half of the game and then the other half of the game sort of becomes like a detective story sort of piecing the rest of the world together from the viewpoints of detectives and sort of getting to know these characters and stuff. Um, you know, and, and I have seen some people that were disappointed that like that, that the story like took a shift, you know, in, in its second sort of half to that way. I personally didn't because I felt like I got what I wanted out of the, the sort of curse bearer, uh, the, the sort of curse stone gameplay. Um, they, they did all of the right cool things with that in the game sort of first half. Um, so I guess to, to set up what that is like just by quickly describing one of the, the scenes, uh, and this is like literally the first encounter, so it's not spoiling too, too much, but this is just an example of how cool and I, I actually described this when I first talked about the game way back in March too. Um, but I'll repeat myself here. Uh, one of the first like curse bearers that you come across is this guy you're talking to him. He seems like weirdly calm, even though he knows that you also have a curse stone and it's like, why isn't he afraid of me? Well, it turns out it's already too late. By the time you got to him, the trigger for his curse was if you just hear his voice, he can just go ahead and kill you whenever he wants. So you're doing this over and over and you're like, what? Like, like how, like, how do I not get killed by this guy? All he has to do is talk to me and I'm dead, you know? Um, and you are getting hints from the storyteller, you know, throughout the course of this. So you're pushed along in a sort of way that feels natural, but eventually you realize like, Oh wait, what I have to do is go into the game's sound settings and turn the volume down in the sound settings so that the character doesn't hear what the person is saying. And that's how you solve that puzzle. And that is like the tip of the iceberg of like the sort of meta, you know, fourth wall breaky stuff. Like that's a simple, that's the first one that happens, you know, the game gets cooler from there, but that was the moment for me where I was like, oh, this game is rad. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, so, so like the rest of, you know, the rest of that sort of section of the game is like, is that it's, it's getting into these kind of like stalemates from the perspective of different characters of like, you know, learning what their curse is and how to not trigger it but also how you can trigger the other person's, uh, you know, like, like you're trying to avoid them triggering theirs and how do I trigger mine? Right. Yeah. Um, so that's a constant stalemate that you're having to, uh, to go back and forth between. I mentioned that you can play as multiple characters because the game actually has 
not unlike something like if anybody played like Detroit Become Human, um, that game will very clearly illustrate like the way that the story can splinter off. This game does too. So you can play from the perspectives of different characters and different outcomes will create other branches that you can freely go back and explore. And the game encourages you to do that. You can do that whenever you want. You can backtrack and explore and see different little outcomes. And sometimes you have to. In fact, sometimes you have to go down a path that you know is a dead end just so that you can get that to splinter off into something else with a different That's character. That's kind of like... Like I'm getting Beacon Pines vibes. Right. Is that yep. kind yep. of accurate? Yep. It definitely kind of feels like that. Like in Beacon Pines, you're like, okay, like I know that this path is going to end in like demise, right? But yes. But doing this is going to allow me the tools to go back and go down this other path. Definitely like that. Um, there, there definitely is that vibe to it. But it's also cool because I mentioned earlier that the whole the reason that these characters are doing this is so that they can perform the rite of resurrection and get a loved one back. So when you're when you're getting to like see the perspectives of all of these characters, there is no hero, there is no villain. These characters are all doing this for quote unquote the right reason, you know. Um, and that I think really kind of accentuates, um, I guess, the the drama of of what's happening. Um, but a really cool thing that this game does, the, the reason I gave y'all all the backstory of the development, you know, history of this game and the person who made it is because this does feel like a master of this genre really getting to play with what works in this genre, especially as it relates to uh, horror. Because one thing that's really cool about this game is I mentioned before, you're in these spaces and you have full 360 degree. You can you can turn around, look at the entire world around you. This is a horror game. So something that Paranormasite likes to do is a good jump scare. And <laughs> there will be moments when you're playing this game where you know you'll see a reaction from a character and you know that something is behind you. And the game makes you physically turn around and look at it, right? And like... That is really effective. That's way more effective than something just jumping out at you. That is true terror of like, I know I have to subject myself to it. Oh God, oh God, let me slowly turn around and look at this thing. Um, the game does a great job with that. There'll be moments where like you're eavesdropping on people, having to kind of like slowly kind of move your head out from behind a tree you know, and stuff like that. The game really has a great sense of how do I take what is ostensibly a 2D visual novel and make it feel very active, you know? Um, really, really good sense of that. I was very impressed by that. Oh, mm, love a good sense of horror. It's, oh, I love it to death. In terms of, like, in terms of the depth, in terms of the mechanics, like, is there any actual like combat or is it essentially just trying to figure out the puzzle of these people's curse stones and then the game just kind of does its thing. Yeah. It's, it's much more of like a puzzle sort of, you're, you're almost like in a game of wits, you know, the, the entire time. And then there will be moments where you're kind of like, you're, you, you really have to like brush up on the things that were in like the, the files. Like I told you all about, like you have to know your stuff. Uh, the game will sort of quiz you, you know, at, at multiple points of like, hey, like, if you don't read up on this, you're not going to know what to do here. 
So I really like that. It, it really sort of, um, I guess it really just sort of lets you get to know the world around you in a way that feels tangible. And for like, for 10 hours, like you really are in it. Like you're here in this night with these characters, um, doing this thing. And there are, again, I'm not going to spoil anything beyond what I've already said, but like, there are really cool, you know, implementations of gameplay beyond just simply, you know, sort of going from place to place, talking to characters. There are a couple of little interesting gameplay moments that, again, break the fourth wall, have you thinking outside the box, and it's always really, really cool. And I think that, like, that stuff is what really separates this. It could be a great story all at once. It can be presented as well as it wants. It can even have, like, cool little moments as much as it wants. But taking, like, the notion of you being an outside observer of this story and encouraging you to encouraging you to like break it to use that power yeah to like to use the power of the outside observer to jump around break it and go down all these little paths uh that is the the pure like pleasure of this game that is what this game does really really well and in that way like i've never really played a visual novel like that that really just let me you know feel it out and just like piece it together and you know, and, and see all of these conclusions and get to know all of these characters. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really impressive, man. It just like, this feels like the culmination of everything that a master of this genre has learned up until this point. Nice. Well, I would ask you about your final thoughts, but I think that pretty <laughs> succinctly pretty much gave it. them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good, man. Okay, well, you sold me. I'm clearly adding that to my queue this coming week in addition to Bramble (laughs) the Mountain King and uh, (laughs) Dementium the Ward. Uh, That sounds absolutely rad. Again, I remember you talking about this earlier this year. I I remember you talking specifically about that encounter where you had to turn the volume down. And you you said yourself, it's like, well, that's when I realized, oh, this game is rad. That was exactly what I was thinking when you told me about it. I was like, oh, this game's rad. Yeah. So, but it's, it's available right now on the Nintendo eShop from Square Enix. And like you said, it's just 20 bucks. Yeah, it's 20. It, it really, that that's what surprises me about it. Again, 10, 12 hours. It's, you're probably not going to replay it or anything like that. But for that, it, it really does feel like a full story. And for that price, I think it's a steal. I've even seen it gone, uh, go on sale a couple of times already. Um, so, I mean, it just comes really highly recommended. If you're a fan of, like, this stuff for Spooky Season, like, it is just the perfect game to, to play this month, man. Again, you know, content warning is out there. I'm letting y'all know it is a mature game. But if you like this sort of, like, you know, Japanese culture... Killing game, Danganronpa style, zero uh, escape style stuff. You you should have bought this and played it already. <laughs> you know, it's funnily enough. I don't think we've ever done an episode which we've had. We do an indie showcase every episode, obviously, but I don't think we've ever had an episode with an indie showcase and a full game review where the full game was cheaper than the indie show. That's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's funny yeah and it's it's weird too because like paranormal site not technically an indie game it's like published and developed by square, square enix. enix yeah yeah but like it has an indie game price tag and like the team that made it was very small but uh it's special man like like i said uh, this will almost certainly be like at the end of the year when we're talking about like top tens and stuff uh it, it's one of my favorite games of the year still all this time later nice. i have not forgotten about it so nice well, uh, I'm sure Seth isn't the only one out there who has played it. Please let us know if you've checked out Paranormicide from Square Enix. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast, on Twitter at All In Podcast. Make sure to join our spooky Discord this month. Uh, I'm sure, Seth, I'm sure I would love to talk with you about it later on. Uh, next week after I've had a chance to play it. You really have sold me on this game. So, But make sure to let us know if you've checked it out. And as a matter of fact, uh, we think you guys should check us out. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash allinpodcast, where every week we break down the week in Nintendo news, in addition to a ton of different videos that are always going up. Seth obviously told you earlier about the ones he did this past week and the ones that... Uh, He's probably already dreading for this coming Steam Next Fest. Oh, yeah, we'll week. see. Yeah. But a uh, ton of content always going up. Uh, but in addition to all of that, guys, we even create exclusive content for our patrons. We sure do. Patreon.com slash all in podcast is the place to be. Uh, wonderful friends and supporters that throw a few bones our way for our hard work. We appreciate y'all. You can join their ranks uh, and get a seven day free trial to the golden banana tier and see what all the fuss is about. That'll let you test out uh, all the exclusive content for yourself. You don't have to take our word for it. Uh, you could also buy some merch at bit.ly slash all in merch. We got, you know, shirts, we got stickers, we got a mug. Uh, that's a great way to support the show. But if you don't have any bones to throw our way, that's okay too. You can always rate the show, review it, drop some words on your podcast service of choice, wherever you listen to us on. Uh, if you can, you know, review it on there, that is very appreciated. Uh, really helps us out. It's totally free, totally easy. And uh, it really is the best way to get like the word of mouth out there. So uh, big thanks to everybody who has, you know, already reviewed the show. And big thanks to you for reviewing it right now. You know? Absolutely. Right now. Don't play any tricks on us, only treats. Give us the treat of a mm -hmm. new review. And for everybody who has done that, for everybody who has reviewed us again on whatever podcasting service you listen to us on, to all of our amazing, legendarily spooky patrons, and to everybody who has picked up a piece of our merch at bit.ly slash merch. I am personally a big fan of our coffee mug. And to everybody who has even just shared our content around this vast internet of ours. To all of you, we would like to extend a heartfelt and spooky namaste. 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 <laughs> yeah, man. Spooky month. Kicked it off in good fashion, I feel like, with yes. Spooky Month, Eric. Yes, we did. And look around the HQ, Seth. Wait, wait what? All the, all the decorations are up now. I don't even know how you pulled that off. All the decorations are up. It's, it's official, Seth. The HQ is haunted in all the best possible ways. We have ghosts who decorate for us. Isn't just that? That's the, great, that's the greatest haunting of all time. Thank <laughs> you to all of you spirits out there who helped 
with decking out the All-In HQ for Spooky Season. But of course, this is just the first week. We've got so much more October left, and we are looking forward to it more mm-hmm. than you guys can imagine. In addition to all of the spooky goodness, obviously, Detective Pikachu just came out. Yeah. Obviously, we're about to get uh, Sonic Superstars and a little game called Super Mario Wonder dropping in our laps in just a couple weeks. I am incredibly stoked, my friend. How about you? Very, very excited. I'm hoping I get my copy of Detective Pikachu soon. Uh, I ordered it <laughs> off of GameStop's website because I had a bunch of uh, rewards points, apparently. Like, they emailed me. They're like, hey, you got all these rewards points. I was able to get the game for, like, 20 bucks. So I was oh, like, heck, I was like, heck yeah. So I pre-ordered on, uh, pre-ordered on their website and it just shipped out uh, and it's like, it'll be there on Monday. So I'm like, okay, well, great. So, but <laughs> yes, I will be playing Detective Pikachu Returns uh, post haste. I'm very excited. Yes. So much going on guys. And I can't wait to dive even further into spooky season this month. I've, oh, I've got to play Pumpkin Jack again. Ooh, yeah. I've got to Classic. do that. But Classic, man. Absolute classic. But there's certainly enough on our plates, guys. So let us get to it. But we will meet you right back here next week for another chilling episode of All In, a Nintendo podcast. But until then, I have been Bramble, the Eric King. And I have been Silent Seth Shattered Memories. We love you all very much. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.